0: ...submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 93, 1911. Sinda Sandin versus Del- DeMont Connor. Mr. Michaels.
1: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case comes to this Court from the Ninth Circuit's decision holding that Hawaii Administrative Rule 17 18 b our burden of proof rule, creates a liberty interest entitling every inmate in the Hawaii penal system to a procedural due process review under the standards of Wolf v. McDonald for every assignment to disciplinary segregation of four hours or more. In so holding, the Ninth Circuit ignored nearly a half dozen decisions of this Court that characterized the Wolf case as applying solely to regimes that threaten the loss of good time credit. The State of Hawaii has no system of good time credit, nor does even our parole system make a disciplinary finding uh, a necessary impact on parole.
2: But it it does make it a relevant finding.
1: It is relevant in the sense that a bad disciplinary record can be, but need not, uh, be a basis for the denial of parole.
2: Right. They could say, this person's record is terrible. Uh, he clearly is, is not a good candidate for a, a trouble-free life if released, so we're not going to parole. Or they could say, this person's record is terrible. Let's get him out of here as soon as we can. They've, they've got that choice.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, Justice Tudor, I would say that the driving force for parole decisions today is a, in, our, in our state would be prison overcrowding. That would be another reason for granting uh, early parole. Uh, but it has no necessary impact, and inmates who have very good records could be in prison could be denied parole for any number of reasons, and inmates that have very bad records in prison could be granted parole for a number of reasons. The Ninth Circuit also ignored a lengthy summary judgment record that tells us what DeMont-Connor's assignment to disciplinary segregation actually meant in real-world terms, he was assigned, before he was assigned, in disciplinary segregation to Module A, and Module A was the most restrictive general population module in in the entire Hawaii penal system. As a result, his assignment to disciplinary segregation meant only the loss of certain privileges and was not a major change in the conditions of his confinement. We ask the Court as it decides this case to keep five things in mind. First, disciplinary confinement is only one stopping point along a continuum of penological responses and is merely the combination of one set of privileges in lieu of another. And we submit that unless the Court is prepared to federalize through the Due Process Clause all state-created privileges in prison, it must reverse the decision of the Ninth Circuit below.
3: Before you continue with that, would you just step back for a moment? You said the only difference was the loss of certain privileges. Can you be specific about what what it was? What the what the loss consisted of?
1: Right. And uh, Justice Ginsburg, I would refer your honor to the uh, guidelines that begin on page 125 of the joint appendix. Um, there are a number of provisions, and I'm to discuss those. When the inmate was in Module A, he was subject to lockdown already for 16 hours a day. When he went to disciplinary confinement, his amount of lockdown time increased, but the inmate was also entitled to out-of-cell exercise time, shower five times a week, religious counseling, legal counseling, as well as a, a monthly visit with his family. Non-contact visit. Uh, The number of visits went down. It would have gone down from eight to one. He would have lost the one telephone call that he could make of a personal nature, although he would have had the right to make legal official phone calls to counsel or to the State Ombudsman. Uh, In addition, uh, the inmate would have lost, when he moved from Module A, the right to watch television and to receive certain newspapers but he would be entitled to have both religious and non-religious reading materials uh, in the disciplinary holding unit.
2: Is is there a third alternative uh, for us? You spoke of federalizing everything, uh, of limiting liberty interests only to those that affect uh, prison time and so on. Is is there a third alternative of, of, of devising some kind of a de minimis
1: rule here? Justice Souter, I suppose that because the concept of de minimis does exist in the law, that one could have that. Um, but it would mean that a very large number of, of privileges that, from a subjective sense, to the prisoner, would not be viewed as uh, de minimis uh, would then be eligible for procedural due process. Protection. Well, I'd, I presume we'd have an
2: objective de minimis rule.
1: Even then, in an objective, te- objective test, I would think that de- the category of de minimis, if the court is going to treat it as it has been treated in the, in the law, would mean that only a very small number of changes uh, would be exempt from federal judicial scrutiny.
2: So we, it wouldn't be worth the trouble from your standpoint for us to have a de minimis rule?
1: We think that the longstanding theme of this court's decisions dealing with prison management uh, would it, just from your standpoint,
2: from your client's standpoint, would it be worth your while to have such a rule?
1: Uh, it would be better than would the, you rather have all or nothing, in effect, rather than have a de minimis rule? We don't think that that, that line is administrable, no, Your Honor.
0: Okay. Well, what you're asking for is a form of de minimis rule, except it's not really de minimis. I mean, you, you're, you're asking for a rule that says where there's no loss of good time credit and no necessary impact on parole, then you would not construe voluntarily adopted prison regulations as creating a liberty
1: interest. In that sense, Mr. Chief Justice, yes. Yes, I, I do say that's not what Justice
0: Souter meant about a de minimis, and perhaps you wouldn't describe it as de minimis, but you're asking for some sort of a cutoff.
1: Yes. Uh, our position is that the line for eligibility for due process protection should be drawn... At good time credits or a, or a finding that has a necessary impact on a parole date. What, what
4: is the underlying theory for that? Uh, I mean, that, that describes the test. It describes the line. But what is the theoretical justification for drawing the line there?
1: Your Honour, we ask the court in this case to look at the structure of cases such as Wolf versus McDonald, as well as extensive progeny in this area. The underlying theme of this Court's decisions is that prison managers need flexibility and discretion. And that to the extent the Constitution intrudes upon that by laying procedural due process requirements upon them, the Court has always been solicitous of categories of conduct that are meaningfully different from one another. For example, in the Wolf case itself, the court distinguished between parole revocation, where the person is already out, and good time credits, where the person is in but has earned a certain expectation of getting out by a particular day. We think that this case is categorically different from even that situation, the good time credit case, and that the appropriate constitutional response is to say, that this is not an area, even where for management reasons we may have mandatory rules, that this is not an area, Justice Kennedy, where the due process clause should be the constitutional protection. One of the points that I make, and I'll make it now, is that we do submit that there will still be backstop constitutional protection against arbitrary assignments to disciplinary segregation. But the source of that right should not be the, the variegated and sometimes complex requirements of the procedural due process clause, but it would be the requirement of minimum rationality under the Equal Protection Clause. May, we I, al- ask you, may I ask you to test your, your, your
5: position for Equal Protection, or I suppose the Eighth Amendment? Too. Supposing that uh, there's no necessary consequence of impact on parole in a particular decision, but your opponent could prove that 99 percent of the time, people who received a particular kind of punishment were denied parole for an extra year, and also that the, 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 whenever they got this particular punishment, they were put in isolation for, say, eight months. Not cruel and unusual punishment, but a dramatically different uh, a situation. Under your rule, I would suppose there's simply no review of the procedures that would precede that.
1: There would be review under the Equal Protection Clause yes, well, I'm assuming no, no
5: racial charge, nothing like that. Just that the, the, the uh, person who made the decision, the argument would be he acted arbitrarily because the crime was not, I mean, the offense was not nearly, you know, whatever the reason might be. But the, you have to assume total discretion on the warden to, to use the kind of punishment I suggest, even if 99 percent of the time, in fact, it would mean an extra year in prison.
1: Several answers, Your Honor. First... As to what the empirical result would be on parole, the Court has already held in cases like the shot case, I believe, that that empirical evidence is not relevant to the procedural due process question.
5: Um, You you may be right as a matter of all I'm asking you. Am I not correctly describing a situation that your rule would tolerate?
1: Our Our rule would not tolerate it if this was a charge that was simply made up. Our position is not? that, because as even this court's cases recognize, although the equal protection, uh, line of argument, the rational basis test is a very lenient test, it is not a toothless test. And that, for example, in cases like City of Cleburne versus Cleburne Living Center, the court actually will require some evidence to show that there is a rational basis for the assignment. So there would be judicial review of the sufficiency of the evidence under your test? Our position is that there would be only a minimal evidence requirement, but yes, there could be judicial review. So there would be a
5: procedural requirement in my case of, of minimum evidence. That's not what the position I understood your brief to advocate.
1: I believe that in my discussion with you that we're at least clarifying our brief. I think that the brief was clear, but I'd like to clarify the brief in that regard. Because of the way the Equal Protection works, in court we would obviously have to produce some evidence, under our theory, to justify the detention. The real-world consequence, though, for this case would be that other requirements of Wolf versus McDonald, such as the contemporary statement of evidence, and the particular problem we had with the Ninth Circuit in this case, dealing with whether witnesses could be called or not, those would be eliminated, and those would be the consequence of adopting our opening argument in the case
6: It's a lot less here than meets the eye you're, you're, you're saying all of this litigation should continue but it should be just a different standard minimal evidence that, that's all you are I, I thought you wanted these cases out of the federal courts
1: well the court, you want them
6: in there just on different uh, different uh, evidentiary standards
1: well we certainly don't want uh, as, as a as a client matter i'm sure that my client would be thrilled if they were never there at all i think in terms of offering the court one way to solve the tensions in the case. It's a a
6: way to win the case, I suppose, but I just don't know how much you're winning. Uh, 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 It's frankly news to me that the Equal Protection Clause is is an an evidentiary uh, uh, guarantee. Uh, Do you have any cases that?
1: uh, Yes. Uh, I can understand Your Honor's concern that as a general matter, when reviewing legislation, the Court will use the imagined rational basis standard. But even cases like, but in cases where there are as-applied equal protection challenges, and these challenges could be brought now, but obviously the litigants don't do, the plaintiffs don't do that because they have a howitzer with the procedural due process clause. Under the Cleburne case, the court actually required in an as-applied equal protection challenge some rational connection between a legitimate interest and isn't what the government the, isn't there was doing a good in reason case. to
0: think that the Cleburne case was something of a sport, in view of our subsequent equal protection jurisprudence?
1: Well, we do offer that as as the support for what the constitutional backstop would be if the Court wanted to go in that way. I don't think
6: it's a backstop. I think you're asking us to jump out of the frying pan into the fire, create a whole new uh, constitutional equal protection jurisprudence that allows all sorts of factual decisions uh, by every state and locality to be reviewed on equal protection grounds. That's a a whole new... uh, a whole new territory. I mean, maybe Hawaii likes it, but uh, I, don't, I don't view it as a, as a, as a great assistance to uh, to the problem of over-intrusiveness of, of, of the
1: federal government into, in, into these matters. Well, it would be a minimal test. And at the same time, Your Honor, yes, we... but
2: may I interrupt you? You say it would be a minimal test. I don't see why it wouldn't be a much more complicated test than the one that you've got now. Because the issue now is whether certain procedural options were provided to the 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 prisoner uh that seems to me something fairly simple to litigate even though it may provoke a certain degree of of nuisance litigation for you but if in fact a minimal sufficiency of evidence criterion is going to take it, its place i would suppose that that was going to be rather more complicated to litigate because you're going to have to establish what was there in the uh, before the um uh, the, the parole before the, the prison warden or whatever the disciplinary committee is. It seems to me that you're asking for the substitution of, of a very complicated procedure in place of a comparatively simple one.
1: We, uh, I respectfully disagree, Justice Tudor, because the present system is not only as, a, as complicated as you make it, but even much more so, because under Superintendent versus Hill, we do have to provide already some evidence, and so we already ha- would have to meet that component under procedural due process analysis. Well, is there any reason to believe
2: that things would be simpler uh, on a sufficiency of uh, minimal sufficiency of evidence test?
1: Yes, indeed, because there are uh, at least several other aspects of procedural due process protections, namely the requirement of a contemporary statement, and there are all kinds of conflicts that arise as to what has to go in the statement, how specific the reference has to be to the evidence, and these provoke a great Amount of litigation, and in this case particularly the issue of witnesses, those would disappear under under our so, under an, our analysis.
4: Suppose the, the uh, prison authorities transferred the prisoner to solitary confinement, uh, and he says there's no reason for doing this, and they said, "Oh, we've heard a rumor that you're a troublemaker." Is that suffice?
1: I would say that that being a troublemaker per se is not governed by the, the specific rules that we have in our institutions. No, no, I,
4: I mean in this hypothetical regime, uh, where we don't have procedural due process protections to any degree, but we do have a minimum requirement of some rationality. Uh, would the case that I put fit within that requirement and meet that requirement?
1: Uh, I have to answer that, Justice Kennedy, yes and no. Yes, if in the rational basis analysis one would be going outside of what the specific rules the prison has in terms of defining the no, legitimate no, you don't, state you don't, you don't
4: have a rule. The, the rule is that the uh, prison authorities can do what's for the best interest of, the pris- uh, of prison management.
1: Then the answer I'm would i trying to follow else.
4: Justice Souter's point, which is indicating to, to, to try to explore whether or not the regime we would be substituting is, 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 is really much of an improvement. And so uh, I put you the case of an assignment to solitary confinement based on a rumor that he's a troublemaker. And I want to know if that meets the minimum small core of rationality that's required for prison officials to act.
1: Yes, we submit that that would suffice.
0: What would be the inquiry? Whether the person was in fact a troublemaker or whether there was a rumor that he was a troublemaker?
1: Uh, It would be whether the the, uh, official genuinely believed that that rumor had basis.
5: Why is that if you if your position is there's no liberty interest at all, why does he even need to, to believe there's a rumor? Why doesn't just to say i think I'll stick this guy in solitary for six months? Uh, it seems to me that was the position you were advocating
6: that's what I thought of
5: There's no liberty interest here, so why should there be any procedural protection? Just well, it, we'd think he'd be better off over and yeah. put him over with Molokai with yeah. the lepers, and that's okay.
6: I thought you were saying, when Mr. Michaels, that, that, uh, that, that essentially when you commit a crime and, and get placed in prison, you become a ward of the state. And one of the punishments of being a ward, one of the bad things about being a ward is that you're subject to sometimes erroneous and even arbitrary decisions, just as a as juvenile is when, when, her, when, her, when her father says, go up to your room for something that she didn't do. That's why it's... The pits to be a ward and it's it's one of the punishments that you're subjected to when you commit a crime i thought that was your position
1: justice scalia the court could certainly decide the case on that basis and frankly my client would be thrilled if it did we have always in our well, are you
2: asking us to or aren't you what we offer that's the basis upon which you want us to decide this case we have offered to the court well yes or no
1: We would like that, but it is not necessary to decide it in that manner for us to prevail.
3: Mr. Michaels, can you spell out your equal protection theory? Because I'm not sure I understand it. Who are the, what are the groups that are being treated dissimilarly? Well,
1: our position that the Equal Protection Clause requires um, a rational basis for the decision with respect to a legitimate state interest, and it would go beyond – your Honor, this, the type of suspect class analysis, and this is the way we presented it in the, both the cert petition and, and in our brief.
4: But, and, and I take it that's based on the theory, or maybe I'm wrong, that the government must always have some reason for what it does? I don't think we've ever said that, but it sounds to me like that would be the underlying theoretical justification f- for this principle, that the government must always have a, some minimum rationality for whatever action it takes. Now, we've never said that. But if that's what you wanted to say, I, I assume that would be the reason. That may well Other than be- that, it's because there is some kind of liberty interest, as Justice Stevens' question points out.
1: It is our position that even in as-applied cases, that there has to be some rational basis. Litigants could bring these cases now, theoretically, under the Court's decisions.
7: Mr. Michaels, suppose we don't adopt your uh, proposed new rule. Do you think that application of existing precedents requires affirmance of the the judgment below in this case?
1: No, Justice O'Connor, we do not. Are you going to
7: talk about that at all, or not?
1: Yes. One of the factors that this Court's existing precedents have focused upon is whether the, uh, whether the constitutional rule that's been proposed by a litigant would be bad constitutional policy. The Ninth Circuit's decision in this case basically tells the states that we could eliminate all of this litigation just by eliminating our rules. In response to the concern of Justice Stevens, if we simply wiped out our rules and said that we can send you to disciplinary confinement whenever we want, we would not have this case before the court.
2: Well, if you really can do that, why don't you go ahead and do it? That way, we wouldn't have to decide a new body of law, and you and your client would get exactly where you want to go.
1: Because it would not get us exactly where we want to go, which is to have guidance to our lower-level officials. It is important for us as prison managers to have rules that are of a mandatory nature, and to have those be uh, instructions you to can our rural Hawaii rural can rural. adopt
6: all of those that it wants. We're not stopping Hawaii. Hawaii can have all the codes of guidance it wants. The only question is whether all of these things are going to be enforceable in federal
1: courts. Yes, and what we submit is that.
6: You want them to be. You, you want us to. Uh, you, 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 you can't do it yourself, you think. That's, that's Hawaii's position.
1: Our position is that as a matter of constitutional doctrine, this Court's decisions in Hewitt versus Helms mm-hmm. have made statements that the Court should be sensitive to the state's incentives in this area. And do, you,
7: do you concede that Hawaii has created here a uh, state-created liberty interest under the scheme you have here under our existing precedents?
1: We disagree with that, Justice O'Connor, and and I'll address that now. And why do you
7: disagree? Is it because it's discretionary, the imposition of sanctions under the Hawaiian scheme?
1: It's a two-part argument. First, we believe that our, our broader ground for reversal does respond to existing precedent, because we believe existing precedent asks the Court to take into account of the incentives that are created. But secondly, we also believe that the assignment is sufficiently discretionary that our case falls within the kinds of language in cases such as Kentucky versus Thompson and Olin versus Joaquin O'Connor. And I'd focus the court on two of the aspects of discretion. First, the Ninth Circuit just read our rule incorrectly in saying that we have a sufficiency, uh, a substantial evidence requirement. The mandate of Rule 17. 20118b is a duty to convict if there is substantial evidence of misconduct. Our rule says that there must be more than mere silence in order to send a person to disciplinary confinement. doesn't
2: doesn't that mean simply it's like an administrative Fifth Amendment? In other words, you you can't find substantial evidence based on the
1: silence of the prisoners. Isn't that all that means? Uh, We we respectfully disagree with that characterization, that that, that— The the purpose of the rule is to require disciplinary confinement if there is substantial evidence, but we can give disciplinary confinement uh, if there is less. Well, well, let me
2: ask a different question. Uh, I take it there's nothing in your rules that expressly says, in the absence of substantial evidence, you may still convict. There's nothing that says that. Not, expo- not explicitly. Well, that, that you say it explicitly or you don't, and, and I take it, it, it there's nothing that says that. You have all sorts of variations about punishment, but about conviction, there's nothing more that is said.
1: It's our position, the way the rule is, is structured, that the committee can
8: convict on less. No,
2: but just tell me how the rule is structured. And, and on the question of conviction, as I understand, you say two things. The rule says two things. You shall convict on substantial evidence. Silence is not enough. That's all it says, isn't it? It says that you must convict on substantial evidence. Well, must shall. It's it's mandatory. But that's all it says, isn't it? Right. And so the Ninth Circuit says, uh, if it says you shall convict on substantial evidence, most people reading that would say you better not convict if you don't have substantial evidence. Is that an unreasonable reading of the rule?
1: That's one possible reading of the rule. Oh, is is it unreasonable? Uh, in light of the overall purposes, we believe that it is, in, the end, in light of the overall purposes of the regulation.
8: So, so is there a case somewhere in, in the—I there I mean, how many instances have there been in which prisoners were, in fact, punished under this rule, though there was a finding there was a not even substantial evidence and they didn't admit guilt? How many such instances have there been?
1: I can't cite any to the court. The other aspect of discretion that we refer the court to is the authority of the administrator, uh, in 17-20120B, to modify uh, any and all findings of the of the uh, of the hearing committee, and this is without this power is without limitation. It is there so that the warden can order assignment to disciplinary uh, segregation when there has been an acquittal that he feels is unjust. What a
6: weird system. Uh, they, they they they're very careful that you can make this finding, and then they say, and by the way. At the end of the day, the warden can do whatever he wants. You really think that's what it means? I, I, uh, I find that very strange. It does vest... Don't you, don't you think it means he can, you know, review and, and uh, alter the findings for some good reason?
1: It does v- it vest greater discretion in the warden because that person has, is at the top of the system mm-hmm. and, and hopefully has a better, better perspective on these, on these questions. Isn't
3: in, in an unusual interpretation of the word modify that formula is used over and over again for appellate review and appellate court can affirm reverse or modify the decision below
1: justice ginsburg our the, the fact that our rule doesn't track all of the the options that are available in the federal statute governing appellate procedure is, in our judgment, not, not enough to say that that discretion is not just as unfettered as in cases such as Olin versus I S. I don't Enoch think that Oman.
3: you're answering the question that I asked. I thought that you say modify means, in the end, the warden can do whatever the warden wants. I thought that that's what you, your interpretation of modify.
1: Yes, that is our interpretation. But,
3: but that word is constantly used to describe uh, options for the appellate forum, court. And it doesn't mean that a Court of Appeals, for example, can do whatever it wants with regard to a district court decision, just because it has authority to affirm, reverse, or modify.
1: What we respond to that concern is that that word uh, has a different meaning in the prison context, and at least this Court's decisions have given prison administrators leeway in interpreting their rules. And if one looks at the Thompson case itself, the Court went quite far— in finding discretion, or frankly, even the state of Kentucky did not believe that there was any.
5: Yeah, I ask you. If, I understand your interpretation in your brief, but has that interpretation been put forward in any judicial decision or any interpretive bulletin or anything like that? Uh, no, Justice
1: Stevens. In fact, the only, the only decision in this area by the Supreme Court of Hawaii that is important or that has even touched upon this is State v. Alvey. State v. Alvey says that the purpose of this system is not punishment. is to regulate the good order of the institution for that reason as well and for other reasons. Well, is there
8: how many instances have there been in which the administrator that overturned? Mm -hmm. Has Uh, there ever been an instance? There has been an instance in which the the administrator punished a person for uh, the high misconduct even though the Board had found no substantial evidence and he didn't concede it? Yes, and actually- We have a site, is there somewhere
1: I don't have a specific site because our administrative decisions are not reported, but I can represent to the Court that there was at least one instance, and because of intimidation at the hearing committee level, that does occur, Your Honor. I would reserve the balance of my time.
0: Very well, Mr. Michaels. Mr. Hoffman, we'll hear from you.
9: Mr. Chief Justice Rehnquist, and may it please the court, um, we had thought this case was about uh, the state of Hawaii's uh, desire to be able to impose arbitrary punishment uh, in the absence of Wolf procedures. Um, we have three main arguments uh, in response to the state's position. The first really is that the case is, is quite a simple case under this court's precedence, that, that under Wolf and Hewitt Uh, It seems clear that these regulations create a liberty interest because they require that there be a finding of guilt, a finding of misconduct before punishment can be imposed. And that starts from the very beginning of the regulations in 172014 that says that these whole regulations are about uh, tailoring punishment for misconduct. What
0: do you understand the test to have been laid down in Hewitt?
9: You are, the, the test that, as, as I understand it in Hewitt, and is that the state has to restrict administrative discretion in a way that would give a prisoner in these circumstances a legitimate expectation that the state is not going to act unless certain specific substantive predicates. Well, Hewitt certainly doesn't say that in so many words. What you what, what talks about is whether there are substantive predicates that are um, laid out and particular standards that that control administrative discretion. But it
0: ends up just being pretty much of an ipsy dixit, doesn't it? It just talks about all the arguments pro and con, and then says, "On these peculiar facts, we find there was a liberty interest." You think that's much to go on? Well, Chief
9: Justice Rehnquist, I think it says more than that. The the, the court said that that the substantive predicates were the need for control in those regulations and a threat to security, and that unless there were findings along those lines, then administrative segregation in U.S. could not be imposed, and that the Pennsylvania statute said that, and that if the Pennsylvania statute had said that administrators could impose administrative segregation for any reason, or if it left, as in Thompson, if it left the ultimate decision to the administrator, free from a substantive predicate that had to be met, then there was the kind of discretion that would not create a liberty interest under this court's doctrine. What was the outcome in Hewitt? Uh, in Hewitt, there was a unanimous court finding that there, were, there was a liberty interest created in those administrative segregation regulations.
6: And was, was that liberty interest violated? Was the finding that well,
9: was, uh, the, the, in, in that case, the the the, uh, the prisoner lost because the. So you could really say
6: it really didn't matter whether they referred to the outcome of the case, whether there was a liberty interest or not. Well, I think it mattered. You could really say that was all dictum. In fact, couldn't you? you? You could say, assuming there was a liberty interest, it wasn't violated in Hewitt.
9: Well, Justice Scalia, I think that the court in, engaged in an extensive analysis. Oh, I, I know, know that,
6: but we sometimes do that, and 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 later we we. Uh, we find out that we really didn't have to go into all that discussion because, uh, you know, assuming there was a liberty interest, it wasn't violated. But, but in Thompson, after you hmm? and in other
9: cases that this court has decided... We did it again in Thompson, didn't we? What, what happened in Thompson? <laughs> I think that it would be difficult, given the line of cases... What, um, was, what was the result in Thompson? Well, in Thompson, the, the court went through the same analysis that... that and who was? <laughs> um, the the prisoner did not win. He didn't win again. Um, again.
6: I hope that so you could not really have... say we said, assuming there was a liberty interest, uh, it really wasn't violated here.
9: Well, no. In Thompson, the court did not find a liberty interest because it found, after reviewing the regulations, that there was ultimate discretion left
6: in the prison administration to See, deny. I, I find it. I find it very. I don't know. Uh, I think it's good that states ought to adopt rules, uh, uh, and, and just as I think it's good that parents ought to adopt rules, you know, for their wards. If you come in later than 12, you get grounded. And then the kid comes in later, you know, a little earlier than 12, and an unreasonable parent says, I make the wrong decision, and, and grounds the the, the the child, that's too bad. But that's not going to cause me to, to say that parents shouldn't make w- rules, or, that courts are going to review what the parents do about it all the time. And, and it seems to me a sensible system for prisons, too. There well, ought to be those rules, in, instead of Hawaii trying to run away from them and, and misdescribe them as really not, not saying you have to make such a finding. You ought to have to make a finding, but that's a matter for the just to Hawaii clear. to decide. Well, it you want to yank all that stuff up here.
9: As a matter of empirical fact, um, all states that, that, that we can find based on the regulations cited by Petitioner have adopted Wolf, more or less. And, in fact, the, there are regulations that are very similar to this. Super- well,
7: maybe they won't, or maybe they'll repeal them if every case involving the provision of a sack lunch ends up as a due process violation. I mean, is there no line that can be drawn? Does the due process clause get invoked when the prison decides somebody's too much of a risk to have a tray with a hot lunch and we're going to give them a sack lunch?
9: Well, I think that that raises the question that was asked before about whether there's some de minimis exception with respect to the creation of of state-created liberty interests or, well, I have two answers really. One is that I'm not sure whether there should be under the jurisprudence of the court that says that it's the weight the nature of the interest rather than the weight, in other words it 's hawaii 's decision to decide what 's important enough to, to to handle their prison in this way because they're clearly well, right a
7: rule dealing with uh, not allowing prisoners to watch uh, violent television programs or something of that sort. We can litigate all this stuff well, in the federal court justice
9: o 'Connor what, what i 'd say to that is it probably is the case that a de minimis line could be created. Um, I, I believe that in this case. We would not be covered by that kind of position. I think, from this court's footnote 19 in Wolf versus McDonald, this court's recognized that putting someone into solitary confinement is a significant thing. And I would, I, I would take issue a bit with uh, with uh, Mr. Michael's uh, description about what happens. I mean, it is true that the, that module, that the module in which Mr. Connor was, was housed before was more restrictive than some other housing units. But in fact, he lost the ability to work. He lost educational opportunities. He was put in lockdown more. The, it was a significant change in conditions because of an act of misconduct, as to which there should be fair procedures to decide. So I think. Well,
6: they were all conditions that he subjected himself to by, by committing the felony he committed.
9: Well, Justice Glee, I think that if the — this Court has repeatedly stated over the years that a, that a person does not lose all of his or her constitutional rights by being in prison. And, and, exactly.
6: and we're talking about how many, how many should be lost.
9: And, and it could be. It could be, as this Court said in you, that uh, for, for reasons of institutional management or security, that administrative segregation conditions, which may even look a lot like disciplinary segregation, can be imposed without this kind of um, scrutiny under the due process clause, if that's how the regulations are drafted. But I think there's a significant distinction, and this Court's cases, I believe, have, have recognized that even in Hewitt, the Court um, uh, distinguished between disciplinary punishment and administrative reasons, that there's a difference when the state seeks to impose additional punishment on someone because of a specific thing that they did. That's not part of the bargain of being in prison.
3: Mr. Huffman, suppose the state had a rule that disciplinary sanctions are within the sound discretion of the warden, period. Would would you have a due process claim, and what would be its nature?
9: We we would not, I believe, have a due process claim based on a state-created liberty interest. In other words, I think the state would be able um, to do that, but I think... There's something
3: anomalous about saying if the state has nothing at all. Here are two people. They're both in prison. One is told whether you go to solitary is within the sole discretion of the warden. And the other is told that you have these procedural rights, and the one who has no rights at all is told, too bad you can't complain. The, the, There's something anomalous about well, that. I, I think you that
9: the, the way that, that I would resolve the anomaly is to say that this court would then be confronted with the question, or, or courts would be confronted with the question, of whether the Due Process Clause itself provides protection against that form of arbitrary punishment. In Hewitt, we said it didn't. didn't Well, I don't think so, Chief Justice Rehnquist. In Hewitt, the Court said that administrative segregation was the kind of event that was in the normal range or limits of confinement. And this Court, at the same time it was saying that, in fact, I believe, in either the next or the prior paragraph, said that that disciplinary punishment was different and that, that there's a big difference between... Subjecting someone to a particular classification or to administrative segregation within a prison environment and putting them in, into adverse conditions because they've done something wrong, arguably. And this Court has recognized in many contexts that punishment is different from measures that would be taken for a regulatory purpose, U.S. What It is,
6: but, but, but what, what, where is it writ that that isn't one of the things that you, you subject yourself to when you commit a crime? I mean, you don't subject yourself to being put in confinement because of your race or because of your color or because of your origin. All those liberties remain. But one of the risks you take when you get sent to jail is 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 unreasonable and arbitrary masters. I mean, that's part of the part of the bad part of uh, thing about being sent to jail. Now, why isn't that acceptable? I think that you can't be tortured. You can't be discriminated against for all those liberty liberty reasons that are set forth in the Constitution, but doggone it, one of the hard things about going to jail is sometimes you get a, you get a bad warden, just like sometimes uh, ch- children have uh, unreasonable parents. It's, it's well, I, punishment.
9: I think that it's inconsistent with the many statements that this court has made That that, that there's no iron curtain between the Constitution and prisoners, because if the Due Process Clause means anything, and the touchstone is protection of the individual against arbitrary government conduct.
3: Yes, but you said, in answer to my question, you you said somebody could be treated much more arbitrarily and has no rights if the state doesn't have a code of fair prison procedure. The fairer the state is, the greater the right of the individual, there is something anomalous about
9: it. Well, I think under this Court State Created Liberty Interest Doctrine, one of the things that, that, that the Due Process Clause protects, in addition to whatever it protects apart from what the State provides, is that when the State provides something that a person can reasonably rely on as an entitlement, that this Court protects that entitlement by fair procedures and well, in
4: the, in the uh, supposition that justice ginsburg has put to you where you have a state that says in the sound discretion of the warden you can be put in solitary confinement uh suppose that were the regime yes no no rules and the warden said uh i think uh, every fifth prisoner should know what it's like to be in solitary and i put you all in solitary for the first two months of your confinement it's one out of five is is that within the sound discretion of the warden
9: well, I think that if...
4: And, 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 and it sounds to me like it, it might well be, but would, would there be a, an underlying due process claim that you could bring to show that this was not within sound discretion as, as that term is generally understood in the law?
9: I believe that, that, the court, that this court left open in Hewitt the question about whether there could be due process claims for that kind of arbitrary decision. I'm not sure about that hypothetical. I think that if it was done to punish someone, I believe it would be different. Uh, and one of the reasons it would be different is that the consequences of, of punishment, as this Court also recognized in Hewitt. In Hewitt, the Court distinguished between administrative segregation and disciplinary segregation in part because it found that the administrative segregation had no impact on parole, likely or, or otherwise. In Hawaii, and I believe it's true in many states, if there's a finding of misconduct that accompanies the decision to put someone in solitary confinement, that has an additional impact beyond the physical change in conditions of confinement, uh, which I believe is where, is where your question is coming from. If there's a decision made for other institutional interests that doesn't focus on a particular person but says one in five or you start at your confinement in, in solitary confinement to see what it would be like, if you break the rules, that, was a, that presents a different question, I think. But that then it seems it.
4: that even if there's a sound discretion standard there, it's going to be some litigation under the Due Process Clause. I, I, Is that what you're saying? I,
9: I, Justice Kennedy? I believe that, that, that if, in fact, states with, gave unlimited discretion, in fact, if we went back to the days of the hands-off rule before Wolf started, what would happen is there would be a new generation of litigation about what the due process required in a variety of situations. And I, I believe, and, and certainly I would be urging, that what the ultimate result of that would be is something that looked a lot like Wolf versus McDonald. And in fact, I think Wolf versus McDonald lays out uh, a set of procedures that are well understood in the prisons of this country, that are applied every day in hundreds of different situations, that, that are accepted, and about, and about which there's not a lot of controversy, and they are very deferential well, to the state. Counsel,
7: after Wolf, the court decided a case called Vitech versus Jones in 1980, and this is what was said uh, in that opinion that changes in the conditions of confinement having a substantial adverse impact on the prisoner are not alone sufficient to invoke the protections of the Due Process Clause, as long as the conditions or degree of confinement to which the prisoner is subjected is within the sentence imposed on him. Now, that language uh, sounds to me like it would go a long way toward uh, ruling out these claims.
9: But this Court also said in, in Wolf uh, that, that solitary confinement should be treated in the same manner. And I think that, and in this Court in Wright versus Inomoto, summarily affirmed the case in which uh, the issue of disciplinary segregation that was the only one that was
3: involved. Not uh, just solitary, because you made the distinction between administrative segregation. So you could be in solitary and you wouldn't have this right. Well, but w- one thing that puzzles me about this particular case, the 1983 action was begun at an interlocutory stage. The warden overturned the basic punishment. True, it's that the time was served, but there is no, on this record, there is no disciplinary segregation. So it's just like, in this particular case, it's just like it had been an administrative segregation, terms are virtually the same, the terms of incarceration. So why should we treat this like a disciplinary segregation when the warden's own determination has, in effect, changed its character?
9: Well, I don't think that the warden's uh, decision changed the character. What happened in terms of the procedure in the case was that uh, this was a disciplinary punishment of 30 days that was made after the Adjustment Committee made its decision and found him guilty of misconduct under the the But didn't the
3: warden, who has review authority and did review this, said that was wrong? The discipline is out of it. Well, Isn't that the effect of the warden's decision to out the discipline part of it?
9: What happened is that, is that after Mr. Connor filed a Section 1983 claim in federal district court in March of 1988, um, the deputy administrator, Pekini, um, expunged as, as part of the administrative review the 30-day sentence involved in the case in May of 1988.
3: So it's just like talking about a district court decision that's been vacated by the Court of Appeals.
9: Well, what, 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 what is still at issue, although not in the questions presented, is whether there is any damage claim relating for the wrongful 30 days and disciplinary punishment. That's what the remaining claim is when it goes.
3: Would there be a damage claim for someone, let's say, who is um — incarcerated pending trial and then that person is um, it's, it's found on appeal that that the, the evidence was insufficient would it be a 1983 claim for the incarceration in the interim
9: not not I believe on those facts
3: then why is this different here we have a disciplinary determination by the original board and it's overturned by the warden
9: well I, I believe what what the problem is that he served the time and, and he served the time because the state violated its due process. But there was an appeal right
3: and it was taken and, and uh, was successful
9: but he still suffered the harm and the harm i mean I think he would have to show as a matter of fact when it goes back down that, 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 that the harm was caused by that failure to afford him with due process in his so position. You're
2: saying that the, the essence of the harm is its disciplinary character. You're, I, you're, you're, I understood your, your argument to be that if this had been uh, imposed purely administratively for non-disciplinary purposes, there would be no, uh, no liberty interest and, and no due process well, claim. So once the, once the disciplinary character has been expunged, and there is no, uh, presumably, no chance of, of collateral consequences, e.g. in the parole decision, then what do you have left?
9: Well, but I think that, that the, the question, as I understood it, presented in the case was whether the, there was a liberty interest created by these regulations so that he would get those, uh, those benefits. I yeah, think but that I, I'm,
2: I'm interested right now in Justice Ginsburg's question, and it seems to me that in answer to her question, uh there is nothing left for you to complain about with respect to a due process violation once the disciplinary character has been taken away because the mere in, the, the the mere minor increase in uh, in discomfort would not in and of itself present a liberty claim well, that'd been done administratively
9: well it's not First of all, it, it's not clear that it would have been done administratively. He was in the general population. He was, he was working. He had, he had a life within the prison of a certain kind. There's no basis in the record to believe that he would have been subjected to administrative segregation. Your answer
6: is that it was not done administratively. You could it wasn't. retroactively make it done administratively. When it was done, it was done as a punishment. That's right and you can say later that was a mistake but in fact it was done as a punishment right. I mean our position is that, I mean, it, it, that is what it was done for and there may be some question whether you can recover for that under 1983 or not but that's not a standing question it's a, it's a question of the merits that's, that's our position but it
0: could, it could be important too if the court and adopt adopts some sort of calculus as to consequences for parole and that sort of thing uh, the fact that he served the 30 days can't be undone, but the fact that it may be treated much differently for parole purposes might make a difference
9: in whether or not there's a state liberty interest. Well, I think that that's true, Chief Justice Rehnquist, and I think that one of the problems, if I may just address the Bright Line proposal, that... that, Isn't there
3: something like a failure to exhaust... uh, that, that the 1983 was at an interlocutory stage you have to watch the entire State proceeding, and it ends up with the disciplinary sanction expunged.
9: Well, I think that, as, as I understand it, under, after Patsy at least, there's no requirement to have exhausted the remedy to begin with, and that the Section 1983 action would not be changed uh, simply because there was this particular action that was taken after the Section 1983. in fact, 1983. it did
3: appeal and, in fact, was successful on appeal.
9: He was successful on that one issue, but he still served the time and suffered the punishment for no good reason, because from his standpoint, he had a staff
3: w- for the punishment, if the, the collateral consequences you differentiated administrative and disciplinary because of the collateral consequences, and now it, there are no collateral consequences.
9: Well, there are no collateral consequences at this point given what the administrator did with respect to this finding of misconduct. But what I would urge is that with respect to deciding what processes do, one can't know that in advance. I mean, when a prisoner is subjected to the potential of a misconduct finding, that's when the decision has to be made about what processes do. Um, He, he, as in the case, if he had not had this this punishment expunged, then it would have been possible to consider it for parole. I would also say, in terms of the Bright Line Rule, that I would certainly not concede for a minute that that what happens in disciplinary punishment within Hawaii and within many states is not sufficiently important to fall within whatever Bright Line exists. And in Wolf, for example, this Court, had passages that said that the fact that you could lose good time didn't have a necessary effect on the duration of your sentence. You might get the good time back. It might not affect your parole. Um, the fact of being put in solitary confinement was viewed to be a, a fact of real substance. And I think within the
3: context, if the issue is what kinds of rules this can... Happened, pre- is this one, you, you said you brought up the Patsy case, but that's going outside the prison setting. Suppose a guard had thrown somebody into solitary and the prison code said, you can go to a disciplinary committee and review that. And the prisoner doesn't. He just said, runs right into federal court and he says, the guard threw me into solitary. I don't have to exhaust anything in the prison under the prison regime.
9: Well, but I don't think he... he, re, he, he at that point he he had not even tried to take advantage of the due process that was afforded he wouldn't have a, a violation at that, the that part because of the due process
3: there. that you can go to the warden it, it's in certainly in that code that you're relying on for other reasons it says you can apply to the warden for review
9: well but but wolf says that you also get a chance to call witnesses to prove your your point and so the the the, the due process violation that he's claiming is not that he didn't get something else that he could have gotten, but that he didn't get one thing that was central to his, um, to his point, which was to try to prove that he didn't do what, what they said he did. Uh, and one of the things Wolfe does is say that unless there is some higher institutional interest in terms of institutional security, you get a right to call that witness uh, in order to be able to prove it. Well,
3: Wolfe didn't present this situation of a warden, having overturned the denial of good time at an earlier stage. Well, you suppose that had happened in well, Suppose the tribunal had said, we're taking away your good time and then the warden reinstates it. Certainly there would be no due process claim.
9: I think that there would still be a due process claim about whether you, you received due process at the time. I mean, one of the problems about the facts of this particular case is that it's not clear how Mr. Connor would know whether, in fact, there was ever going to be any action on his claim. And the, the events, this hearing was in August of 1987. He filed his case in March of 1988. The administrator's decision was in May of 1988. It was not clear at the point he filed this case that there was ever going to be any action, and in fact, he had served his entire time by that time. And so if it was wrongful for him to have done that because he had suffered a, a, a due process violation, then I think he still has...
3: So it's the bare procedural right. I mean, we could take it in the Wolf context. The warden, after the 1983 action begins, reviews the decision and says it was wrong to remove his good time. He's got it back, so he's going to get out just when he expected to. He would still have... A federal claim you say because of the process
9: well i think that i, th- I think that in, in truth the the amount of damages that you suffer in, in a case like that if you're not for example put into solitary confinement but you've lost good time alone would be very hard to establish very many damages but i think at least theoretically if you've been denied you could the you could have too, your
3: claim you could get declaratory relief and you could you could get uh, what is it uh, One dollar in damages, maybe.
9: I mean, you might get nominal damages. You might not get nominal damages. I mean, I think that the- the But but the claim, you'd
3: still have the claim on your reasoning, right?
9: Well, I think that the claim, if there's a state-created liberty interest or a liberty interest under the due process clause, you would have a claim if, if the proper procedures are denied you. Yes. We, without that would be our position that you do have that claim. Uh, if I may, on the on the just to uh, to, to address the particular bright line that that um, that Hawaii has set forth, um, the the line in the, this court's cases um, has not really been about duration of confinement. I mean, they've they've tried. This court has tried to talk about things that are, uh, I believe, things of real substance, including administrative segregation. Uh, where a state actually creates rules that limit the imposition of administrative segregation like UIT, this Court has found that that is certainly an important enough matter that the state can be held to its word. And it is an important matter. Uh, And it may be that in some circumstances, administrative segregation would also raise constitutional questions. Um, But the line about duration of confinement would, first of all, not be a bright line, because in this case, we should fall within it. His duration of confinement, at least from the standpoint of what the potential punishment is, uh, it clearly makes this an important decision that's going to be made about misconduct. And, and it's, it's, there are many different interests in a prison about which prison authorities could create regulations that might or might not uh, create a liberty interest. And I think that But the, what the
8: court has basically done, I guess, in this area, as in property, is that it's said that one way of looking to see if there's a liberty or property interest is to see if the discretion of the decision-maker to remove the thing from the person is significantly confined or cabined by state rules or regulations, right? Yes. And sometimes the problem is that protects things that seem trivial, and sometimes it doesn't protect things that seem important. Now, have you a better way than that? I mean, I guess the main argument for that, particularly in the trivial area, is it's hard to think of a better way. And do you have a suggestion, if this is being written, for something that would in a better way distinguish the important from the trivial for purposes of the due process clause? Well, I think it would be very difficult to draw the line. I mean, I've actually
9: thought a lot about, about how you would draw that line. And, is there a better way, really? Well, I'm not sure that there is a better way to draw the line. I think that one of, the, one of the advantages of the court's doctrine in the absence of the better way is that it essentially leaves it up to the states to make a certain decision. I mean, for example, there, in almost every state regulation that we looked at, um, if there's minor punishment, relatively minor punishment, the procedures of Wolf are not applied. I mean, it's much more summary procedures that look a lot more like like you and and it appears that there's not a lot of complaint about that. And so what we're talking about here is a significant punishment. It's significant both under this court's cases, but also in Hawaii. Hawaii considers this to be an important punishment.
6: Why wouldn't it suffice if we held for those matters uh, it's a denial of due process if the states do not provide state court review? of the uh, prison determinations?
9: Well, I think that, that, that this Court's cases, certainly the parat line of cases, seem to indicate that when there's random and unauthorized State action, that post-deprivation remedies uh, would be appropriate. But I think that in a case where there's an established procedure, like this one that's been in existence for more than 20 years, that the, that the issue is really what processes do as part of this determination, not at some later point uh, in a State Court hearing on damages.
0: Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. The case is submitted. The honorable court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.